Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the podcast hosted by the bloggers of FT Alphaville. If you want to know more about us, come visit us at ftalphaville.ft.com, where you can also leave us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is being recorded on Wednesday, June 8th, 2011. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I'm a New York-based correspondent for FT Alphaville. Thanks for tuning in to the first edition of Alpha Chat. After our conversation today, I'll have a few words about what we're trying to do with this podcast and how you can help us out. But for now, let's get right to it. Our topic today is the Chinese economy, and our guest on the line from Beijing is Michael Pettis, a professor of finance at Peking University, senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the chief strategist at Chen Yin Wanguo Securities. He also runs a nightclub in Beijing and has his own indie record label there. Michael, thanks for being on Alpha Chat. Thank you. Well, I want to start with an entertaining post you wrote earlier this year on your blog, You wrote about how so many economists try to pinpoint the precise time, the precise year in which the Chinese economy will surpass that of the U.S. in size, either if it continues growing at its current pace or according to whatever forecasted growth rate it is that they're using. But you wrote that this is really a very silly exercise because you have to make certain adjustments that you believe are necessary to account for what you call environmental degradation and misallocated investments. And when you make these adjustments, it's actually very hard to know exactly where GDP is. So talk about these adjustments and why they matter. Well, I would argue, you know, and this, this is not a new story. This is something we've seen many times before. In the early 1960s, the big debate was uh, how long it would take for the Soviet Union to overtake the U.S. economy because the Soviet Union had been growing so rapidly. And I guess most uh, intelligent observers pretty much agreed that that would happen before the end of the century and not a whole lot longer. We had the same debate about Japan. And I, I mention these cases because in both cases, and in several others that we've seen in the last 100 years, for example, Brazil in the 60s and 70s, we've had this period of very, very rapid investment-driven growth. And in every single case, uh, I can't think of a single exception, the very rapid growth continued up to a point uh, after which we started seeing an unsustainable increase in debt And as debt levels became higher and higher, the whole growth model stopped, and it was followed by one or two uh, lost decades of very, very low growth or negative growth. And I think there's a reason for it. I think what happens with these models is that you get very, very rapid growth in the early stages that is sustainable because it's very easy to identify investment opportunities that are economically viable. But the nature of the system doesn't allow you to know when investments are no longer economically viable. And as you keep pumping up investments, the value that you're creating in many cases is actually negative, although it continues to show up as rapid growth because the way we calculate GDP doesn't really distinguish between investment that has a positive net present value and investment that has a negative uh, net present value. 
So what I would argue is that in the late stages of all of these cases of Brazil, uh, Japan, uh, the Soviet Union, and, and China, and a number of other countries, growth was significantly overstated. And it was overstated because we were measuring growth as investment and not as value creation. So you throw in environmental degradation, you know, it's easy to get growth for a, say, a, um, a factory if they're able to dump chemicals in the river. They show growth today. But dumping chemicals in the river reduces the value of land and water in the future. But it doesn't show up as a reduction in current GDP. So when you add these two things together, then it's reasonable to say that real GDP growth is actually much less than nominal GDP growth. So we're overstating GDP growth for many years. And uh, ultimately, as we start paying for the cost of that overstatement, we're going to see much, much slower GDP growth. So if you assume that GDP growth in, in, in China has been overstated by two to three percentage points just for the past decade, and there are plausible arguments that it's been overstated by more and for a longer period, but if you just make that assumption, that suggests that if we could correctly measure GDP in, in China, it might be actually 70 to 75 percent of the nominal numbers that are presented every year. Now, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that any attempt to estimate this is going to be surrounded by errors. And I would say it is probably much more likely that GDP in China is lower than the stated amount than it is higher than the stated amount. And we've seen that in every other case of long-term rapid investment-driven growth. And I would be really surprised if we weren't seeing the same thing in China. And I want to... I want to actually talk at length about something you just said, the resemblance between the Chinese economy now and the Japanese economy of the late 1980s and early 1990s. And so as a, as a quick checklist, in both cases, policymakers had for decades pursued this investment export-led growth strategy. They implemented policies that held down household consumption. They held down bank lending rates to encourage investment in the export sectors. They subsidized the manufacturing sector. And obviously, they, they kept their currencies artificially depressed and, and built up big current account surpluses. So take us through some of the ways that this analogy and the subsequent Japanese experience of the next two decades, which obviously hasn't been pretty, informs our understanding of, of where the Chinese economy is now and where it's going. Well, as you point out, they followed uh, fairly similar policies, the biggest difference being that these were pushed to a much further extent in, in China than they, than they ever were in Japan, or probably in any of the previous cases. Um, but, you know, if you look at Japanese growth in a slightly different way, if you look at the growth in household consumption rather than the reported growth in GDP, you get a very, very different story. Uh, um, so you'll find that in the 1970s and 1980s, household consumption growth was much lower than GDP growth. But after 1990, when supposedly the Japanese economy collapsed, household consumption growth continued, and, and it exceeded GDP growth pretty substantially. So what I would argue is that it's very difficult to get the true measure of the real wealth creation in the Japanese economy, but looking at household income or at household consumption might be a much better proxy than looking at GDP, which isn't able to distinguish between misallocated, uh, wasted investment and efficient and well-allocated investment. So one of the numbers that really, or, or, or the series of numbers that really impresses me is that if you look at the Japanese economy as a share of global GDP, 
1970, Japan was roughly 7% of the world. And by 1980, it had grown to something like 10% of the world. Good, solid growth. But over the next decade, it nearly doubled its share of global GDP, so that by the early 90s, Japan was something like 17 to 18% of the world. Um, as you know, last year, Japan was overtaken by China at roughly 9% of the world. So the Japanese share of global GDP today, you know, there are some adjustments because of currency, but it's not radically different from what it was in the late 70s and early 80s. And much of that spectacular growth, that nominal growth that so impressed us, that we saw in the 1980s, has sort of vanished. And I think that that's, that's sort of a very good indication of what the problem is. Much of the growth that took place in Japan in the 1980s was growth driven by misallocated investment, by wasted capital, and it all had to be paid for in future periods in the form of very high levels of debt. So it's interesting that every one of these countries ended up, after a period of very, very rapid growth, with unsustainably high debt levels. And I don't think that's a surprise. You can think of the debt as the measure of the difference between reported growth and real growth. And once we go into negative real growth, then almost by definition, debt levels are going to have to rise very, very quickly. Yeah, and I've, I was intrigued by what you've written about Chinese household consumption because a lot of a lot of economists or a lot of market watchers have said that for the Chinese economy to rebalance and to go away from its sort of export model and towards higher consumption that one of the strategies needs to be to build a bigger social safety net so the Chinese households are more comfortable spending you've argued that that's actually the wrong the wrong idea because it's not that Chinese households are are culturally more averse to spending than, than households anywhere else. They're not. The problem is, as you've said, that their share of national income is actually pretty low and it hasn't kept pace with economic growth. So what is the right solution here? What, which set of strategies would bring about this rebalancing and how realistic is it that the Chinese government would implement them? Well, Chinese household consumption is very low as a share of GDP, but if you look at it as a share of household income, it's not that low. There are other countries that save a higher share of their income, their household income, than China does. The key is that household income is so low. And I would argue that household income is so low because of the huge transfers that were necessary from the household sector to subsidize all of this wasted growth. Basically, it's the household sector that pays for this in the form of slow wage growth and, and undervalued currency and, uh, and most importantly, very, very low interest rates. So the key to getting household consumption up is not to get the Chinese to consume a higher share of their income, which is usually what people mean when they say improve the social safety net, etc. The key is to get household income up as a share of GDP. Now, one way of doing that is improving the social safety net if the households aren't forced to pay for it, if the state sector pays for it. But that's only one of the many ways of doing it. They've got to raise wages faster than productivity growth. They've got to raise the value of the currency They've got to, uh, most importantly, raise interest rates. Anything that raises the household income share of GDP, that will automatically cause the household consumption share of GDP also to rise. So, you know, in 2005, when household consumption collapsed to 40% of GDP, there was a huge amount of consternation because we'd never seen such a low number before. And there was a determination on the part of policymakers that they were going to raise the household consumption share. 
And a lot of people felt, well, you know, great, once Beijing understands the problem and decides to fix it, then the problem is more or less solved. But a couple of us were very, very skeptical because for us, the only way to solve the problem was to raise the household income share. And the only way to raise the household income share was to eliminate all of these huge transfers from the household sector to subsidize this very, very rapid investment-driven growth. And it seemed to us that there was no interest in Beijing basically to abandon the growth model. And without abandoning the growth model, you couldn't raise the household consumption share. So we were fairly uh, pessimistic. I argued that the household consumption would stagnate at around 40% of GDP. And, and even I was wrong. It was much lower. Uh, the latest numbers we have are for 2009 where it dropped to an astonishing 35% of GDP. And we believe it's probably even lower. It's probably hit 34% of GDP. So that, to me, has made it pretty clear that you cannot raise the household consumption share through administrative means. The only way you can do it is to reverse the growth model. And I think that there's increasing awareness among Beijing policymakers that this is what they're going to have to do. But with that increasing awareness, also a great deal of reluctance, because by definition it means growth rates are going to slow down sharply. The only thing driving growth rates are the increases in investments. And if investment is being misallocated, then in order to stop the transfer from the household sector, you're going to have to reduce investment sharply. And that's going to be very, very difficult for GDP growth, although not for household income growth. You've also said that you find it more likely that China will experience a substantial growth slowdown rather than an outright financial crisis or some kind of a big economic collapse. Why is that? Because the banking system is very inefficient, but it's, it's very stable. It's very difficult to move money in and out of the banking system or in and out of the country. And the banking system, as everyone knows, is effectively guaranteed by the government. So what ends up happening, you know, on the one hand, you can adjust with a collapse in asset prices, a surge in non-performing loans, a collapse in the banking system. And some people might argue that over the longer term, that's much more efficient because by allowing all of these asset values be liquidated and by allowing their prices to collapse, you reintroduce them into the economy and you begin the process of capital allocation all over again. And if you allow interest rates to rise, etc., capital will become more efficiently allocated. The problem, of course, is that it introduces a great deal of social instability in the short term. So countries like China and, and like Japan in the 1990s, rather than allow that collapse and liquidation, will slow down the process. The government will simply absorb the debt and then pay for the debt again by transfers from the household sector. So it slows down the pace of the adjustment. In the long term, I would argue that that makes the adjustment much more costly. But in the short term, it reduces the likelihood of a great deal of short-term social instability. And I think, you know, that's a trade-off that every country has to make. How much efficiency are you willing to sacrifice for stability? And I would argue that in, in China, they would be willing to sacrifice quite a lot of efficiency in exchange for stability, which is why I think rather than have a very short, sharp, ugly, brutal adjustment, you're going to really have a long period of grinding away at the excesses and much, much lower levels of growth. That's actually an easy segue into our next topic, which is the current state of the Chinese banking system. You mentioned a second ago that, that it's obviously uh, an integral part of, of executing this investment strategy. 
banks are forced to fund projects at lower interest rates than the market would otherwise dictate. This leads to a lot of non-performing loans. So tell us, how bad is it right now? I mean, what, what, what is the status of non-performing loans in Chinese banks at the moment? Well, that, that really becomes a definitional problem. The, the amount of non-performing loans in the Chinese banking system is probably low, not as low as the official numbers, because when you speak to bankers, you hear of a lot of transactions whose sole purpose or whose main purpose is to prevent the loans from being listed as non-performing. But even if you included all those, non-performing loans are probably low. And that's because a lot of the loan transactions are explicitly or implicitly guaranteed by local or central governments. So from that point of view, you could argue that non-performing loans are, are quite low. If you define non-performing loans to mean any loan to a project that is unable economically to repay that loan, then non-performing loans are probably much higher. If you further define non-performing loans in, in the broadest way possible, and that is that loans to projects that are unable to service those loans, if all of the subsidies were removed, most importantly the interest rate subsidy, in other words, if you were to define non-performing loans as loans that couldn't be serviced by the project when interest rates were raised to whatever the correct level is, at least four or 500 basis points, then you would probably see a huge amount of non-performing loans, and, and how much it's very hard to say. 20-30% of the total loan portfolio, by that definition, maybe more, would be non-performing. Now, a lot of people would say, well, why would you ever do that? Why would you want implicitly to raise the interest rates and see how many of the loans then are non-performing? And the reason you want to do that is because you're doing it anyway. If you raise the interest rates to the correct level and see how much of the loans are non-performing, that tells you how much losses there are and what has to be absorbed ultimately by either the state sector or the household sector. If you keep interest rates very, very low, you're not eliminating those losses. All you're doing is providing a mechanism by which the household sector is paying for those losses. Basically, if the correct interest rate is, you know, to pick a number out of the air, 10%, but you actually lower the interest rate to 6%, that's the equivalent of giving 4% debt forgiveness every year to the borrower. And, of course, that debt forgiveness isn't free. The debt forgiveness is paid for on the other side by the depositors. Um, so, for me, the key question is not how, what percentage of the loans are technically non-performing. For me, the key question is how much of the loans have embedded in them losses that one way or the other are going to be paid for by the household sector. And the answer to that question, of course, no one can answer. But I think everyone would agree that it would probably be a very, very high number. So there have been quite a few reports this year about how Chinese banks are experiencing a liquidity crunch, and it's a result of a number of things. One is that corporate deposits are down. We'll talk about that in a minute. Another is that savings deposits have sort of flattened after years of climbing. And another is that they have tighter reserve requirements as the central bank tries to fight inflation. How worried should we be about this? Well, the real liquidity squeeze is not in the banking system, but rather among the smaller banks. If you look at their liability structure, you find that they have a very low share of household deposits. Much of their money is either in, in the form of purchased funds in the interbank market or corporate deposits, neither of which is very stable. So it's really the smaller banks that are being squeezed. They're the ones that are suffering the liquidity constraints. Now, some people will tell you that that indicates that monetary policy is very tight. 
And I don't really see it that way. It is, I guess you can say it's tight by definition if interest rates are going up. But when you look at monetary growth, especially when you adjust the monetary aggregates for the disintermediation that's taking place in the Chinese banking system, both deposits and loans are moving off balance sheet. If you add them back in again, uh, even before you add them, but especially after you add them, you'll see that by almost any definition, monetary growth, credit growth in China is very, very high. So why does it feel tight? It feels tight because there's been such a massive increase in investment flows into infrastructure projects and real estate development projects that in spite of very rapid credit growth, that credit growth has been overwhelmed by demand from infrastructure and real estate developers. That's something that I think we should worry about because I would argue that those are the two main sources of misallocated investment, infrastructure spending and real estate development. But so much of the capital is going there. If there was some magic way to figure out what was really happening, if, if we could actually calculate the amount of loans that should qualify as non-performing loans by our broadest definition, we would see that loan growth is actually much lower because there would be tremendous write-offs being taken in the banking system. But it's very hard to figure out these numbers because the write-offs aren't being taken. What we're seeing is very, very rapid nominal growth and a sense of tightness in the market. And part of that tightness must be because of so much misallocated investment. Does China have a real estate bubble? And discuss its importance to the rest of the economy, if it does. You know, I'm not smart enough to tell you if real estate prices are too high or too low. Uh, A lot of very knowledgeable people argue both sides of it. But what I would say is that when the cost of capital is too low, there is a tendency for asset prices to soar. There is a tendency for asset bubbles. And everywhere you look in China, you see evidence of asset price bubbles. So the price of Chinese art, of calligraphy, of collectibles, of stamps, of premium tea, of uh, storable fungus, very expensive fungus used for medicinal purposes, of gold, jewelry, almost everything that, that is collectible, the price seems to be soaring. The price of jade is much more expensive for the highest quality jade than the price of gold, and it's reached all-time historical prices. So what I would argue is that you would expect to see asset price bubbles when there's excessive liquidity. It looks like there is excessive liquidity, and it certainly looks like there are asset price bubbles. So whether that would show up in real estate prices or not, it seems to me pretty plausible to argue that it must show up in real estate prices, and certainly prices have gone up so quickly for so long that it's hard to imagine that there isn't at least some mispricing there. But the key thing is really not, you know, one of the mistakes that we make when we think about Japan, when we compare Japan and China, is that it was the collapse in the stock market and real estate market that preceded the two lost Japanese decades. So there's a tendency to think that it was the collapse in real estate and stock prices that caused the Japanese crisis, just like we believe, many people believe, that it was the 1929 stock market crash that caused the Great Depression. But in each case, I don't think that's the case. The stock market and real estate bubbles and crashes were symptoms of the underlying problem, but the underlying problem was excess investment in a wide variety of areas, in manufacturing, and in infrastructure, and in real estate, etc. That's what we're going to have to uh, grind away, whether we actually see a collapse in real estate prices or whether, in fact, real estate is taken off the market so that we don't see the real decline, that's not going to matter that much. What matters is that if it's true that we have misallocated investment and counted it as growth, 
we're going to have to reverse that in the future. Let's talk about the currency. This is obviously a big source of political tension with the U.S., but also increasingly, I think, with other countries. Talk about the pace at which China is allowing its currency to appreciate. Uh, Is it appropriate or should it be accelerated? Well, it's very difficult because I think many people in China understand that they need to rebalance the economy. I think the mistake that many people outside of China make is to think that the currency is the key thing. It's not the key thing. It's one of the key things. The, the three key things are that wages have to go up faster than productivity, the currency has to go up in real terms, and interest rates have to go up in real terms. And to me, it doesn't really matter at the aggregate level which one of those things China does, as long as on the aggregate, in the aggregate, all three things are happening. The problem arises because the way in which China adjusts affects different sectors of the economy very, very differently. So, of course, if the currency goes up in real terms, that puts most of the brunt of the adjustment on the export sector, on the tradable goods sector. If interest rates go up in real terms, that puts most of the brunt of the adjustment on the local and municipal governments and on SOEs, both of them are heavily leveraged. And, of course, if uh, wages go up very quickly, that puts the brunt on all employers in general. So the way I really think about it, it's sort of meaningless to say what's the best way to do it. We can all discuss that, and there are, there are lots of plausible things you can say. But ultimately, the way the adjustment takes place is a political decision, and it's based on the relative strengths of the various constituencies that are affected. Jeffrey Frieden at uh, Harvard University made this argument in a classic book that he wrote, Debt Development in Democracy, about Latin America in the 1960s and 1970s. And the point that he made is that when you introduce distortions into the economy, certain sectors benefit from those distortions. And the longer they benefit from those distortions, the more powerful they become. And, of course, the more powerful they become, the more resistant they are towards eliminating those distortions. And I think really that's the way we need to think about the adjustment process in China. It's a very complicated political dance that depends on the relative power of the various constituencies. One of which, of course, is the external sector. If the U.S. and Europe continue to put tremendous pressure on China to raise the value of the currency, that becomes part of the, that political process. But it's very, very hard to predict because you really have to predict the political process. And I don't think, uh, certainly I'm not smart enough to tell you how that'll how that'll work out. But really, we need to be thinking about the aggregate process, interest rates, wages, and the currency, not just the currency. You recently took a long trip through the U.S. to meet with investors. Can you tell us what they were most curious or worried about, and what did you tell them? I think most investors continue to hold the same views of China that they've held in the last four or five years. But the number of skeptics is rising very quickly, especially among the more sophisticated and larger funds that I visited. But among them, I think the most interesting thing is that everybody wanted to talk about debt. In fact, several uh, of the people that I met with showed me their own attempts to count debt. They actually had some of their associates simply try to figure out and count all the different types of debt. So there's clearly, it seems to me, a sense that debt is the Achilles heel of this growth model. And I think that's, that's mirrored uh, within China, too. It's still not in the majority opinion, but if you talk to people who have a very strong background in, in monetary economics, people at the various regulators at the Central Bank, at the National Bureau of Statistics, and some of the people in the State Council, 
you can see that the focus on debt has increased significantly and the nervousness about debt has increased significantly. I, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a very good thing. Debt has always been the problem. Unsustainable increases in debt have always been the problem with, uh, with this kind of growth model. And we should be very, very aware of that. And is there anything in particular that you think is widely misunderstood about the Chinese economy by people outside the country? Well, unfortunately, an awful lot is widely misunderstood. So there are people who will tell you that debt levels are very low because they don't really understand how to think about debt. Um, one, of the, one of the more troubling uh, comments that you hear, even from people who should know better, is comments about the amount of the reserves. The huge amount of foreign reserves is seen by many people as conclusive proof that China is in a very, very strong position and doesn't have a debt problem. But, of course, that's not the case. Very high reserves protect you from certain types of financial instability, which no one, not even the biggest bears, think threaten China, and exacerbates other types of financial instability, particularly domestic banking instability. And I think that's the really big problem. In fact, rather than think of reserves as a huge source of wealth that can be used to paper over problems, we should think of reserves as a huge source of debt. Because remember, that the PDOC doesn't own the reserves in the form of capital. It had to borrow domestically in order to buy those reserves. So the PDOC has a big mismatched balance sheet. It owns dollar and euro assets against which it has renminbi liabilities. So as the value of the renminbi goes up, or as renminbi interest rates go up, the net indebtedness of the PDOC rises pretty quickly. You know, to take a very, very quick example, since reserves are roughly half of GDP, if the renminbi goes up by 10% against the dollar, the net indebtedness of the PBOC goes up by 5% of China's GDP. These are really big numbers. And I think the mistake is to see the reserves as the source of strength rather than as one of the sources of weakness in the underlying economy. Yeah, it's a counterintuitive way of, of thinking about it, I think. Very interesting. A lot of the crises that we've had in recent years were external debt crises. So there's this belief that external debt crisis is the crisis you have to worry about. But as any financial historian will tell you, the vast majority of crises have not been external debt crises. They've been domestic debt crises. And reserves are absolutely useless in protecting you from a domestic debt crisis. In fact, very high levels of reserves are historically associated with greater domestic banking instability, not, not less banking instability. So if you're worried about China defaulting on its external debt, then the reserves should give you a huge amount of comfort. They're simply not going to default on their external debt. But that's, nobody worries about that. That was Korea's problem. That was Mexico's problem. But that wasn't Japan's problem. It wasn't the U.S. problem, and it won't be China's problem. We're just about out of time. Do you want to share some thoughts on what it's like to be a business owner in China? You've got a nightclub, an indie record label. I think you're probably the only finance professor slash Chinese music impresario in the world. Probably. uh, You know, calling it a business is a really big word. That sort of implies that it's profitable or that it's intended to be profitable. It's not. We really support, you know, Beijing has become in the last five or six years, in my opinion, one of the uh, most interesting new music scenes in the world. I would say I would rank it among the top five or ten cities of the world. And it all happened very, very quickly. And, you know, the purpose of my club and my CD label is really to help as much as possible identify 
you know, some of these very exciting young musicians and artists that are coming out and giving them support. So in that sense, it's been really spectacular. It's very, very exciting to see this happen. But I, I, I'm not sure it's ever going to turn a profit, and that's really not the purpose. But it is, a, it is an interesting way of understanding how business and creativity take place in China. Our guest today has been Michael Pettis. Michael, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Cardiff. Today's conversation is over, and I just want to say a few words now about what we're trying to do with this podcast. We're trying this out, not because we think that the universe is in some desperate need of yet another podcast, but just because it seemed like a fun thing to do and because we thought it was something that our readers might like. But the truth is that we don't really know what we're doing yet. We're okay with that. And we're not in any kind of a rush. We'd like to experiment a bit, try different formats until something feels right. And here's how you can help us. First of all, you can subscribe. And more importantly, visit our website and send us ideas. Which guests would you want us to have on? Are there any other formats that you think would work better? We'd love to hear your thoughts. So that's all for now. Thanks again for listening, and have a good one. Thanks to Mari Hall for the music, and Sally Herships, our sound engineer. This podcast was recorded at CDM Studios in New York. Take care. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.